the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. We pray that through this message, you will learn how to apply God's Word and truth to your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us. I'll start with a very important fact that you and I need to understand or believe about God, that God is right and holy and just, that God is a right and holy and just God. Part of the love of God also includes the fact that He is a right and righteous God, a God of justice. You can't be a God of love without at the same time also being a God of justice and a God of righteousness because real love has to be based in justice and righteousness. And so God is a God who is righteous or a God who is right. What I mean by that and what the scriptures teach us related to God in terms of His righteousness is that God is always right. There's never a time that God is wrong. There's never a time that God has wrong motives or wrong actions in your life, that God is always right or righteous, that God is holy. That means that He is never contaminated by any kind of inferior motives or impure motives at all in terms of how He operates. But God, in His very nature, is right, righteous, holy, and He's a God of judgment or justice, we should say. And so it's very important that we understand this because it provides you the capacity to trust in God. When you know that God God is always right, it means that you can trust God's ways in your life because God's ways are always right for you. Amen? So the rightness of God is valuable to us. Notice Psalm chapter 11, verse number 7. Notice what it says. For the Lord is, what is He? He is righteous. Now, we find other verses in Scripture. God is love. God is light. God is kind of verses. And this is one of those verses. God is righteous. God doesn't just do righteous things. He is righteous. He is right. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. The apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he's about ready to die, pass from this life to the next life. And he writes these words to his protege, Timothy, to us as well. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul says, I'm convinced about something in relationship to God. He is righteous. He is the righteous judge. That means this, that when you get to heaven, whatever you've done for the glory of God, even though no one else has seen it, God has seen it, and God will reward you accordingly. He is a righteous judge. And God always does right. It's also valuable for us to understand in our lives as believers in Christ that we have now been given by God this wonderful thing called righteousness, that in God there is righteousness, but in relationship with God through Christ, we've been given a gift of righteousness. Because all of us are sinners. All of us came into this world breaking the law of God, doing things our way. And because of that, we deserved punishment. We deserved that God would extend His wrath against us and justice against us because all of us are sinners. 
But God did this wonderful thing. He said, I'm going to send my son into the world, and my son is going to take the place on the cross of Calvary for every sin that has ever been committed, for every mistake you've ever made, for every penalty that you have committed in your life against God, every time you've broken God's law. The Bible says that God sent his son to the world on our behalf, and Jesus took that punishment for us so that he took the justice or the judgment for our sin so that we could experience the righteousness of Christ given as a gift to us. Notice what the scripture says in Romans 3. We are made right, or one translation says we are justified. The word justified or the phrase there, made right, just as if you never sinned. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ we will cert- he will certainly save us from God's condemnation for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies we will certainly be saved through the life of his son so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God and that wonderful to know that Jesus took the justice that we deserve deserve, the penalty that we deserve, the condemnation that we deserve, he took it so that we could be made righteous before God when we put our faith in him. What an amazing gift that he's brought to us. But our God, the God that we serve, is right, he is holy, he is just, and he justifies us in and through our faith in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to share with you today related to God. What do we are to believe about God? We must believe that God has revealed himself in creation in Revelation, that's the Bible, and through the incarnation, that is Jesus Christ, that God has revealed himself through three things. God, while there are certainly mysterious things about God that we will not understand until we get to heaven, God wants to continually reveal himself to you. He wants you to get to know him better. And the Bible teaches us that God has revealed himself to us in three expressions or three dimensions through creation, through Revelation, I'll give you another word for that as well, or also inspiration, and through incarnation, that's God coming to earth in Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus. So God says, I want you to get to know me, and the way you're going to get to know me are through these three avenues, through creation, through revelation or inspiration, and through incarnation through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about these for a moment. Let's talk about how God reveals himself. How do we get to know God through creation? Listen to Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, as it points us back to this whole idea that God has revealed himself to us in creation. The psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. The Bible is teaching us there this, that God has given us a message in creation, and that message gets preached every day. There's not a single day that goes by that God is not preaching a message to the world that I exist through his creation. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 20 reminds us of this, where it says, since earliest times, notice this, since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power, so they will have no excuse when they stand before God at judgment day. God said, when anybody comes before me on judgment day, you have no excuse to say that I didn't exist, because every day I was preaching a message to you, when the sun came up in the morning and the sun set at night, when the stars came up in the evening and the moon would shine at night, when you saw the clouds and the beauty of nature, and you walked through the through the fields and saw the beauty of a flower. It was me proclaiming to you my existence. There is no excuse not to believe in the reality of God. He reveals himself to us in creation, but he also reveals himself to us through revelation and inspiration or the word of God, God's word. God says, I want you to get to know me and I'm preaching you a message in creation, but I'm also giving you my message through my word. And that word is called the Bible. Now, the Bible really is a tremendous, miraculous book. I want to talk to you for a few moments about how you can be confident in your Bible. This wonderful thing called the Bible is something that you and I can be absolutely confident in terms of it being the Word of God. I'm going to give you some reasons to believe in the validity and reliability of the Bible. So let me give you some things. I want to talk, first of all, about the bibliographical evidence for Scripture. It's a big word. What does it mean? Bibliographical evidence that our Bible is reliable. To understand this, I need to give you a couple of other words. The first word is the word autograph. The Bible is a book of 66 books. Okay, there are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, written by about 40 different people over about 1,500 years. So that's the, the way our Bible came to us. When these individuals were first moved upon by God to, to give us these messages, they would be written down, okay? And they were written down on some kind of paper. The paper back then was most likely something like papyrus. And so it was an organic material that over a period of time, organic material is going to deteriorate, okay? And so for there to be ongoing copies of the autograph, which is the original manuscript or the original document, let's say, for example, with Isaiah, when Isaiah was moved on by the Holy Spirit, at some point in time, he has to sit down and start writing this out. And so he writes it down and that's called the autograph. That's, that's the original document, the original, if you will, version of, let's say, the book of Isaiah. But as I said, over a period of time, what's going to happen to that papyrus? It's going to start deteriorating if you're not careful. So the scribes said, we've got to make sure that we have ongoing copies of this. And so they began to produce manuscripts, okay? And the original meaning of the word manuscript, we use it in a larger way now, but the original meaning for the word manuscript is something written by hand, okay? That's the idea of a manuscript, written by hand, right? And so what would happen is these scribes would meticulously get the autograph, and then they would copy from the autograph the next manuscript, and then over time, another group of scribes would copy the manuscript, and another group of scribes would copy the manuscript, and so we have copies of the autograph passed down through manuscripts. Now, the question becomes, how do you know, once you get down here, how do you know that it's still accurate to the autograph, right? 
that the Bible we have based upon these ancient manuscripts, how do you know that it's reliable? How do you know that we can go back and say, well, yeah, we believe it has reliability. I'm going to show you two great ways that you can know this. It's first of all, by the distance of time between the autograph, the original, and the first manuscript, okay? How much time existed between this autograph and this first manuscript? And then the second thing is how, how many manuscripts you have, because the more manuscripts you have, the better, because you then have the opportunity of comparing, contrasting. And the more of these manuscripts, you say, oh yeah, it really looks consistent, or no, it doesn't look consistent. And so the more, the better, and the closer to the time of the original, the better, right? Everybody got this so far? Let's talk for a moment about your New Testament. Are you ready for this? Your New Testament, the conclusion, most of the autographs of the New Testament were concluded about 100 A.D., okay? Some written a little bit before that time, but somewhere around, by, the, by about 100 A.D., all the New Testament, the autographs had been prepared. The closest manuscript that we have to the autograph is only 25 years which I'll show you in a moment how incredible that is. And when you look out among all the manuscripts that we have that we can compare in terms of the New Testament alone, they're over, get this, they're over 25,000 manuscripts that we have available to us. So we've got a lot of evidence, and they're all consistent with what we see going back to the most closest timeline of that 25 years. Now, why is this significant? Because in other historical writings that people claim to be valid, for example, things like Homer's Iliad and those kind of things, do you know that in in that regard, we're talking about literally hundreds of years between the autograph, I think even with Homer, I think it's like 500 years, the, uh, the closest manuscript is to the autograph. We have something that's 25 years close enough to the autograph. In terms of like, for example, Homer's Iliad, I think there's 1,800 manuscripts, which is a large number compared to uh, all the others. Most of them are even far less than that, and we still consider these documents to be reliable. I will tell you, we have far more than ample proof that what we have in our Bible is the real deal, okay? God has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. How do we know that Jesus is the real deal? I mean, how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because if He is the Son of God, then that requires a response from us, correct? And if He is not the Son of God, then we've been duped, correct? So we've got to ask the question, how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? I want to give you some proofs that I hold dear, that I think very common for each of us potentially, that can help you have confidence that Jesus is who He said He is. First of all, it is through the fulfilled prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in His life from the Old Testament. Think about that for a moment. Amazing prophecies. The Bible told where He was going to be born back hundreds of years, 700 years before Jesus was born. It told where He was going to be born in Bethlehem. It told us that he was going to be born of a virgin. Of course, we have the story in the New Testament of of the Virgin Mary. It tells us that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That goes back into the Old Testament. Over 300 times, very specific prophecies in the Old Testament that could have not. I mean, we're talking about no way that Jesus could have done this except by reason of him being who he said he was. And so we know that he's the son of God by the fulfillment of prophecies. We know that he's the son of God by the presentation of his miracles. 
No one did miracles like Jesus did. Eyewitnesses to his miracles. John, in fact, says that we were eyewitnesses of these things. And we told you about these things. And we haven't even told you all that we saw. We've only told you a portion of the miracles that we saw. We know that Jesus is the Son of God by reason of his teaching. No teaching has ever changed the world like the teaching of Jesus Christ. It is just a part above. It is way, levels above any other kind of teaching that you'll ever see in terms of spiritual impartation and truth for your life. But the primary reason that we know that Jesus is the Son of God, I'll give you two more actually, because he claimed to be the Son of God also. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, so he declared that. So you don't walk around saying, I'm the Son of God, unless you're crazy or you're real, correct? But Jesus proved that he was the Son of God because he claimed he backed up his claim. And the last one here is through his death and resurrection. And this is the highlight or the capstone of the proof of Jesus. In fact, everything about Jesus rises and falls on whether we believe he died and rose again. So let's talk about that for a moment. We know that he died because the the soldiers around that cross of his crucifixion were given very clear instructions to make sure that he was dead. And so they absolutely made sure he was dead. Why is that important? Because if he's going to rise from the dead, he has to first of all be dead, okay? Okay, otherwise it's just going to be something that's sort of a, a myth that is propagated, okay? He sort of swooned and fainted for a couple of days and then he sort of came back and revived. No, they proved that he was dead. They put a spear through his side and blood and water flowed from it. It was proof that he was indeed dead. And then they put him in a tomb. Matthew chapter 27 said that Pilate made it clear that when they put him in the tomb, they were to roll a stone over the front of that tomb and to set a Roman seal over it and to put two Roman soldiers to guard it. Why? Because they did not want anyone to come and steal the body of Jesus and to make up again some kind of myth that he'd raised from the dead. They were wanting to make sure that this was absolutely, completely secure. I mean, you don't normally put soldiers at a tomb. Now, we also know that on Easter morning, that when Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to people, his post-resurrection appearances, people like Mary Magdalene, like the disciples, like Thomas, how he appeared, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to over 500 people, how he appeared to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus as he's going there to persecute the church. These are post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that motivated these disciples, these apostles, to such a degree that they were willing to give their entire life for the gospel message that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And most of them allowed their lives to be martyred for the sake of the gospel. You don't give your life for a lie. You give your life or something you know to be true. So there you see in this, this whole reality that Jesus said, I want you to have confidence and assurance that I've revealed myself to you. I've revealed myself to you through creation. I want you to know me when you look around at creation. I want you to know me through the inspiration and revelation of my word. But most importantly, I want you to know me through a relationship with my son, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrected Savior. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. I'm reading from the Living Bible. Long ago, God spoke in many different ways to our fathers through the prophets and visions, dreams, even face to face, telling them little by little about his plans. But now in these days, he has spoken to us through his son, to whom he has given everything and through whom he made the world and everything there is. God's son shines out with God's glory and all that God's son is and does marks him as God. 
He regulates the universe by the mighty power of His command. He is the one who died to cleanse us and clear our record of all sin and then set down in the highest honor beside the great God of heaven. The third thing, and I'm going to give you these very quickly. God is a God of wisdom, truth, and authority who can, has, and will show us the right way to live. Because God says, I want to reveal myself to you. He also promises to show you the right way to live. That's what you need to believe about God. That God will show you how to live your life. What do you need to believe about God? Believe that God is for you, not against you. That God is for you. He is not against you. You need to believe this. this is a critical belief about God. When you finally believe that God is for you and not against you, it changes your game. It dramatically changes everything in your life. All too often we view God as somehow being opposed to us, that somehow He is sort of against us, working against our best interests. But the Bible clearly teaches us that our God is for us. God is for you. He is not against you. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Say with me, God is for me. Say it with me. God is for me. He's not against me. God is for me. Even when God works on things in your life or draws attention to things in your life, it's not because He's against you. It's because He's for you, trying to bring you into the better life that He's planned for you. God is the God to whom we freely and fully owe. There's your key word. I'll come back to it in a moment. Owe our faith, our trust, reverent worship, our submission, and our obedience. A lot of words there, but all these words are important. God is a God to whom we freely and fully owe. What do we owe Him? Notice on your statement there, our faith, our trust, our reverent worship, our submission, and our obedience. So, I want you to capture this word with me. We owe this to God, okay? What does it mean to owe something to someone? It means that that is something is rightfully due them, correct? Based upon what God has done for us to respond back to Him in a certain way, to respond back to Him in faith and, and in trust, in our reverent worship, in submission and obedience to Him. Now, we don't owe back to God the debt for our sins. No, Jesus paid for that. You don't have to pay for your sins anymore. Isn't that good to know? You don't have to work it all, make it right with God. No, Jesus took care of that. So we're not talking about that you owe God a debt for the sins you've committed. No, Jesus took care of that bill for you. That one's paid. Okay. Now, out of the fact that Jesus paid that bill for you, there ought to be a sense of owing to God rightful, free worship and submission and honor to live now for him he bought you out of slavery now you owe your life back to him your freedom came because of what jesus did for you amen now look with me if you will at revelation chapter 4 verse 11 with this we're going to conclude our last verse today the bible says here's the here's john the apostle who's looking up into heaven he's seeing what's going on in the heavenly realms and he says you are worthy our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being here john the apostle is seeing what's going on in heaven and he hears the heavenly host declaring one thing 
saying over and over again, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. And so what's happening in heaven is the declaration of the worthiness of God and how I want to encourage you to live your life. What should you believe about God? You should believe that God is worthy of every part of your being, that God is worthy of everything in your life. That He is worthy. This is so important. What do I believe about God? I believe at the core of my being that He and He alone is worthy for me to give my life for. Okay? My life is... There's nothing else that has the worth that He has that I can invest my life in. That He alone is worthy. And so when I wake up every day, when I start my day, I start my day saying, God, today I know that You alone, You are worthy. I want to live my life in a way that, is, that, that brings worth to You, that brings honor to You. I owe to You today the declaration of, of Your worthiness. I owe to You the glory that is due unto Your name. I'm going to live my day and each day in a way that brings honor to the one to whom honor is due. Amen? We owe Him that. So what do you believe about God? What you believe about God matters because what you believe about God will determine your relationship with God. And the better, you believe, the better your beliefs of God, the better relationships you'll have, your better relationship you will have with God. Perhaps as you have been listening to today's broadcast, you felt a stirring in your heart, something that reminded you that you need to get something right in your life with God. The first way to start in that journey with God is to open your heart to Jesus Christ, to make Him the Lord of your life, to turn over all your life to Him. And that begins with a very simple prayer. I want to lead you in that prayer right now, and it's a prayer that you can pray right where you are. Say these words, Jesus, I invite you into my life today to forgive me of all my sins. I need you. I want you. I want you to take charge of my life. Be my Lord and Savior in Jesus' name. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says, when we call on God's name, when we call on the name of His Son, Jesus, there is salvation that is brought to our lives. He changes us from the inside out. And the Bible says that if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And that's what's happened to you today as you've opened your heart to Christ. Let me encourage you. You need to take the next step. The next step is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church where you're studying God's Word. And make sure you get a copy of God's Word and begin to read it. Spend some time each day in prayer. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. If you would like more information please visit our website at church-redeemer.org. May God bless you and make you a blessing. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.